you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans this morning, we're going to look at the first seven verses of that book. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Again, we're God's holy word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved by him for our benefit, says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we continue in your presence in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our request now is first that you'd enable us to be attentive. Give us grace to stay awake, to stay alert, to give you our attention, to worship you with our intentions, our desire to be, know, and do what you teach us this morning. But then thirdly, O oh God, through this the means of grace as it's proclaimed, give us grace. Grace that we might honor you with our behavior, our thoughts, our words. Grace that we might be sustained in a world that's against us. Grace that we might be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, oh God, give us grace. Fill this, your servant, with your Holy Spirit. Speak through him to the glory of Jesus Christ, first and foremost. Secondly, to the edification of his saints. Thirdly, to the conviction and the call and the conversion of those among us this morning who may not know you. Father, we ask that if you choose to bring about your honor and glory through the failure, through the uh, foolishness of this your servant, so be it. Only be glorified. Only give grace to your people. Thank you. We pray these things in our position in Jesus Christ, in the authority he gave to ask. Amen. Paul writes the first seven verses, and he says, what I want you to do is read the rest of the book. Here's my cover letter that explains my bona fides. Now, you'd expect in those for him to pat himself on the back and say, this is why you need to support me. But he really says... You need to do this because God has called me to this ministry. And God has given me what's necessary in order for this ministry to be accomplished. And what we're looking at this morning is what Paul has said God has done in his life. Four reasons that he gives why the Romans should both read the letter that he has written and then go on to support him in his efforts to carry the gospel to Spain. And reasons that you and I should have both in the way that 
we present ourselves to a world around us, I mean, really, think about it for just a moment. You want to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those in your spheres of influence, the people you work with, the people that live in your neighborhoods. I'm assuming the best of you, many of us don't want to do that. We're afraid that we don't know enough about the gospel. We're afraid that we might uh, make a mistake. We're afraid that we can't save them anyway. And so sometimes we fail to share that gospel. But if you know Jesus Christ, you want to proclaim his glory, you want to see the people around you come to faith in Jesus Christ, well, why should they listen to you? What are your bona fides? The first level of application of this text is, in fact, these should be your bona fides. These should be the things that are true of you. But more importantly, why do we listen to preachers in the first place? There was a young man went to another uh, pastor in, in uh, my previous denomination, and he says, why do we have preachers anyway? Uh, he didn't think much of his existing pastor. He wanted him gone. Why do we have preachers anyway? Well, we have preachers for these reasons, and we should look for these kinds of bona fides in the people that we listen to, that we hear, that we heed. We choose the preachers that we listen to for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's because they entertain us, I'm really not in the entertainment business, although uh, the people at New Hope said on numerous occasions that I was simply a frustrated stand-up comic. I was not funny, and they didn't want to hear my jokes. But um, why, why should people listen to us? Because of the four reasons that God gave the Apostle Paul. So whether it's me or another, you don't listen because he's entertaining. You don't listen because... Um, he necessarily says everything that you agree with. You know, when people say good sermon, sometimes they mean, I can't believe you kept me awake for a half hour. Or in my case, 45 minutes to an hour and a half. I can't believe that you said the things that I would have said if I was up there. You know, you, you made me think. You said something I agree with. There's all kinds of reasons that we say good sermon. But these are the reasons we should say good sermon. So without further ado, let's dig into the four reasons that God gives for Paul to be recommended not only to the mission field, but for them to listen to what Paul has to say about the gospel of Jesus Christ, why they should listen to us, and why we should listen to those that God puts over us. Okay? So the first reason is simply this, the calling of God. Paul says it this way, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, he identifies himself three ways. The first is he uses that word servant. Now, you need to know that the word translated servant here is not the word servant. There are other words in the New Testament that are better translated servant. One of them is the word deacon. It's often used to say servant. Sometimes it's the word house manager. Sometimes it's the word bond slave. There's a variety of words that are used. Paul uses here the word slave. Now that's important to us because there were three kinds of slaves in Paul's day. The first, Paul would have known more in his uh, ethnicity, which is to say because he was in fact Jewish of the Hebrew people and had grown up in that culture, the slaves that they had were more indentured servants. They were people who owed a debt to a particular master that they could not pay, and so they went to work for that master so that they could pay back that debt. The catch was this. At the end of either six or seven years, they had to be released, debt paid in full. So they were only slaves, as it were, for 
a maximum of seven years, unless they really liked that guy, or they loved the work, or sometimes, if I understand the Old Testament correctly, if they went to work as an indentured servant for seven years and the master gave them a wife, and they got married to that woman and had kids by her, he could leave, but the wife and the kids couldn't. So sometimes he'd say, you know, I can't leave my wife and kids. I'm going to stick around. It was sometimes the interest of the slave owner to give him a wife and kids. But I'd like to think that mostly it was because he really wanted to be in his employee. And so they called those people bond slaves. And they would take those free but willing slaves and walk them over to a doorpost, put their earlobe against the door, take an awl and put a hole through it, and put a ring in the ear. And that ring said, free but I belong to this guy to work for him, hopefully, because I really like him. Now, those were the two kinds of slaves that Paul was most familiar with as a Jew. But Paul writes to the Romans in the middle of a Roman-conquered world, and the Roman slaves were conquered peoples. They were people who lived in lands that the Romans had overthrown militarily. And rather than simply kill everybody, they needed somebody to manage those lands and they needed somebody to pay them tribute so that they could keep up the lifestyle that they wanted in the capital areas of the kingdom. And so they would enslave those people. They were not nice about it. They didn't have any idea of indentured servitude. There was no freedom ever to be had for those slaves. It was possibly even the forerunner of what you and I know as slavery in these United States. Paul writes, I'm a slave, and it brings to mind those three things. And I think in Paul's case, it meant all three. I mean, on the one hand, Paul was indeed one who owed God everything, was he not? And so he's one who becomes an indentured servant to God. But Paul had been at this a whole lot more than seven years. And even though he was free in Christ, he said, pierce my ear with an awe. I want very much out of gratitude and love for what God has done for me to continue on in my service of Jesus Christ. But thirdly, Paul had been conquered. Paul was bought with the price of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all three of those apply to Paul. Paul says, that's who I am. I am a slave in these United States. There are a variety of ways, I understand now, over 80, that we can choose to identify. Paul could have said, hey, I'm an apostle. Or, hey, I'm a missionary. I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He identifies himself first and foremost as a slave. I identify as a sinner saved by grace. That's it. That's who I am. Paul says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Not the humility there, but the identity in Christ. If a slave talked to you, if you asked him a question and he responded, you may have listened, you may have wanted his opinion, you may simply wanted to know who he was. Uh, you certainly didn't care about who, how he was if you were a Roman. But generally speaking, if you ask him a question, you're not asking what he is going to say, you're asking what his master is going to say. And the point of being a slave is that you spoke for someone else. The second way Paul identifies himself is, I'm called apostle. Now, that's, that's a good translation. But we've translated that as what a verbal noun. I know you came to church this morning and said you could have an English grammar lesson. It's actually a noun. 
not a verbal noun. It's literally a called one and apostle. They're in apposition. They mean the same thing. They go together. And we know that because later on he says, you're the called ones, the saints. And he uses that same construction to say, you're the called of Jesus Christ. And I could be saying, I've been called and forgiven my sins. I am identifying, says the Apostle Paul, as a sinner saved by grace. He could be saying simply, I'm called of God and set apart unto apostleship. But the point to apostleship that he wants, I think, to emphasize here is simply this. I speak for God. You know, in the old days, says the book of Hebrews, God spoke to us through prophets and apostles. The Old Testament prophet office was the same as the New Testament prophet office. I am the spokesman. And Paul would have been, and we use the word plenipotentiary. That simply means this. If Paul said it, God said it, period. And you listen. I know there are at least two times in the New Testament where the apostle Paul says, this is my opinion. And, and not necessarily of God, but God included it in his word. And every word is true. And so if Paul said it, God said it. And you needed to listen. But thirdly, he was set apart. It means selected, appointed, separated. He has made God's messenger. He's the one that God has said, you will be the herald of what I have to say. And that's the point. He speaks as God speaks. So when we're listening to a sermon, we're not so much listening to what Jim or John or any of our favorite radio preachers has to say or how well they entertain us. We're listening for what God has to say. And the point there is authority. We're listening to what God has authorized to be said. Now, we hate authority. We are born with a natural rebellion against it. No, we're not, Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't walk on the grass. Wet paint. We've got to touch it and find out. We are born in rebellion against that. But now, in the gospel, we have hearts that submit to Christ as Lord. And by his grace to those that he has appointed as authorities over us. And we listen to what they have to say. You know, interestingly enough, in John 1.12, it says, To any who believe on him, he gave, and we translate it, power to become the sons of God. It's not the word power. It's the word authority. He gave the authority to become the children of God. And to those within his church, he gives some of us authority over others. When I was a kid, my dad gets a kick out of reminding me of this. He thought it was cute. Uh, we, My siblings and I would, would play. I was the oldest of four. And when we play, sometimes, I don't know that we necessarily played cops and robbers, but I would say, stop in the name of the legal law. Dad just thought that was really funny. Stop in the name of the legal law. There was a cartoon on it at the time uh, called Deputy Dog, and that was what he said. I was simply quoting what Deputy Dog said. I see some heads going up and down. It means you're older than dirt like I am. I'm sorry. <laughs> Deputy Dog, stop in the name of the legal law. Paul says, do this because God says so. We listen to those who proclaim the word of God to us because God says, I said this. Secondly, I want you to note the message of God. In verses 2 to 4, Paul begins to talk about Christ. Now, you're expecting him to list his bona fides, but he says, my bona fides include the message that I'm going to proclaim, the gospel regarding his son. I want you to note first the content of what he says. It's scripture. I'm not preaching first opinion. I'm not preaching something that somebody else said. I'm not preaching today's psychology lessons, what I'm preaching is the very word of God. The scriptures, the emphasis 
is on Christ, the Son of God, specifically what he did for us in salvation. We listen to hear God, and we listen because we're in honor and submission to him, but we listen to learn who God is in Christ. We listen because he comes with God's teaching. He comes with God's illumination. Now, the Apostle Paul spoke what you and I would call revelation. I speak what you and I would call illumination. I don't speak with the same authority the Apostle Paul spoke. I've got a much lower office. But I speak to illuminate you, to help you understand that. Paul speaks of God. Lord willing, as we study the word of God, we learn more about who he is. You know, Jesus looked at uh, a group of people that were arguing with him one day. I don't remember if it was the scribes, the Pharisees, or the, the priests, and the Levites. But he looked at him and he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you find eternal life. You think in them you find the things that you need to do in order to be worthy of eternal life. But what you don't understand is these are the scriptures that speak of me. Now growing up, I honestly believed that that meant Jesus was saying, they prophesy that I'm coming and you've missed it. But I don't think that's what he was saying at all. I think what he was saying is this book is my autobiography. This book tells you who I am. They speak of me. Every portion of the scriptures answers at least one question. It's the first of the two reasons that the, I believe it's the Shorter Catechism gives for why we understand, why we read the word of God. Because it tells us who God is. It tells us certainly what duty God requires of man. But first and most importantly, it tells us who God is. And we need to go to the word of God with at least one question. God Who are you? And every passage will tell you something about who God is. Now, some of them are difficult to understand. You you decide you're going to read through the Bible, and that works really well until you get to Genesis chapter 5. And -and so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so begets, so-and-so. And and you're thinking, why am I reading a genealogy? What's that tell me about who God is? It tells us God is Father, and that each person matters enough to him to record their names in his eternal scriptures. God identifies himself in every passage. That's what we proclaim, who God is, who Christ is. And Jesus said, if you know me, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We want to know that God. We don't want to hear of God. In our fallen state, we hate God. He's different what what we think he ought to be or what we want him to be. We want a benign Santa Claus in the sky who gets us out of all kinds of troubles, gives us what we want, but God opens our heart to truth. Jesus is the truth. It's recognized by the Holy Spirit's prompting within us, Scripture confirming it. You remember the Bereans? It says they were more noble than the Thessalonians because instead of kicking Paul out of Berea, they studied the Scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. Two tests of prophets in the Old Testament, same two tests in the New Testament. What they said came true. There's a sign. But then secondly, it's consistent with what God has said about himself throughout the Scriptures. God reveals himself. Ronald Reagan, I think, uh, had a really good line. He said, trust, but verify. I trust what this guy has to say. I hope that you go home and you read Romans 1 through 7 and you look at it and say, you know, I, I think Jim was wrong. Write me. Tell me about that. Wait about a week so that I can get over it. But Be nice to me, but check me out. Don't just take my word for it. 
Check the word. Is this what God says? All right. Thirdly, he has the purpose of God. It says my, my job is to call people to the obedience of faith. And I want you to know two things about the call. The first is that the call is universal. The call is for everybody. You and I believe that the call of God is sufficient to cover the sins of 10,000 worlds, of a universe of planets that may or may not have people on them. I personally have the opinion that this is the only one that has it, but you don't have to agree with me on that. You're, you're entitled to be wrong. I, I'm sorry. It doesn't get any funnier. Now, you know why my... God sacrificed Jesus, a sacrifice of infinite, inestimable value. It could have covered the sins of the universe, but it only is efficient, sufficient for all, efficient for the sins of those for whom Jesus died. Jesus is what Paul talks about. The purpose of God is to see people trusting in Jesus Christ and to call them. Now, you and I, I've had, every time you witness, you will be successful. Absolute guarantee. Now, I don't mean that everybody you witness to is going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But the word of God will work in their lives. And it will work in one of two ways. The covenant always carries a blessing. And the covenant always carries a curse. God will either bless them or he will curse them. You will be successful in pronouncing the judgment of God on them. God will either say, I'll give you belief that I pronounce judgment on my son. Or I will condemn you. And hold you more accountable because you have now heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guaranteed success in witnessing. But you need to go into it believing that God's purpose will be accomplished. That he is really calling people to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, our understanding of the gospel from the Westminster Confession of Faith is when the number is complete of the elect, Jesus comes. The fact that God elects means there's still out there people that he's going to save. And the only means God has ordained, not only the ends, but the means, the only means that he uses to bring people to faith in Christ is the proclamation of the gospel. And the people that he uses are you and me. And he makes us successful in that proclamation. So Paul says that gospel fulfills God's purpose. It calls everybody and it's sufficient. But sometimes that gospel is used between Christians, which is to say we preach the gospel. You know, Paul says we only preach Christ and him crucified. You know, I'm thinking of that every time I read Ephesians 5 and I'm really not living up to what I'm supposed to do in my marriage vows. You know, I'm thinking about that when I'm a kid and it says children obey your parents. What's that got to do with the gospel? Paul says it's the gospel applied. All we do is preach Christ. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we preach it to believers, it's encouraging them. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily it's making them feel better about themselves or making them feel like they've done a good job. It means that they're accomplishing their purpose. They're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Sometimes that word parakaleo, called alongside, sometimes that word, which is translated encouragement, sometimes it's translated comfort, Sometimes it's translated warn or admonish. Sometimes it's translated beg or plead. It's just what we do with one another.
to move one another closer to the goal of being like Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's, you're doing a really good job, keep it up. Sometimes it's, it's that way, guys. That's Christ-likeness. You're facing in the wrong direction. Sometimes it's, okay, you're weary. I understand. It's hard to be like Jesus. By the way, the Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. You will not do it apart from the grace of God in Christ. You cannot do it in the power of you. But sometimes you don't even feel like you could do it in the power of Jesus. And you need somebody with skin on to come by and lend you a hand. And they'll put their arms around you and they'll pick you up and they'll say, okay, let's go in the grace that God gives me today. Let's go together to where we need to be. That's encouraging. Sometimes it's, psst, you're going the wrong way. It's this way. Not just you're facing in the wrong direction. You are intentionally going the wrong way. And we rebuke and admonish you. Same word. We want you to be more like Jesus. Sometimes the gospel brings people to faith in Christ. Sometimes the gospel moves us closer to being like Jesus. Either way, it accomplishes the purposes of God, not mine. Not what I want to manipulate or twist you to be or think or know or do. It's what God wants. The preacher is about what God wants. He speaks for God. He comes with God's intentions, God's goals, God's aims. Sometimes that's difficult for us because we do what we want. You say, no, 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 Jim. I'm a Christian now. No. Lena Abujamra is the daughter of a family at New Hope Church. I've known Lena for almost 30 years. Lena just put on her website, she's a, a teacher of women now. She's a pediatrician, but she has decided mostly just to proclaim the gospel among the women of our land. And she says, you know, what I've discovered recently in my growth is that even though I profess faith in Jesus Christ, even though I profess submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ, I spend my time doing what I want to do instead of asking Jesus what he wants me to do. God has called us to his lordship. It's his purposes. That's what life is about. But God frees our will so that we desire and do righteousness. We submit to, is what Paul says that, Philippians, I believe it's 2.13. It is he who works within you both to will and to do his good pleasure. God at work within us, making those things happen. There was a coal miner in Ireland and he was really frustrated with the fact that he was doing all of this labor and only the owner was becoming a multimillionaire. And so the owner took him into his office and he sat him down and he explained, I, I pay you by how many tons of coal that you can mine for me. If you can mine more coal for me, I'll pay you more. I give good workers better pay. It changed, his name was Flynn. It changed Flynn's attitude. Every time he dug a shovel of coal and threw it into the hopper, he said, that's another dollar for Flynn. You know, Jesus looked at you and me, and he says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? I call that enlightened self-interest. Jesus looking at you and me and saying, the best for you is my goal. The best thing that you can accomplish is to be about what I am. You say, well, Lord, that doesn't put food on the table. He says, no, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness. I'll see that you're taken care of. Solomon and all his wealth wasn't clothed as, clothed as well as the lilies of the field. 
the food that is on your tables. Birds don't worry about it. I feed them. I'll take care of you. Just seek first my kingdom. And I'll make sure that your needs are met. Just be about my purposes. Finally, I want you to note the power of God. We received grace. And then he says what we used as a salutation this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says we've received the grace of apostleship. Now, he's specifically pointing to office there. But I don't think he's pointing to the authority at this point. I think he's saying this. When God gave me that office... God gave me a special ability to fulfill that office. I was praying on, on the way down. I was actually singing on the way down. Fortunately, you didn't have to listen to that, but I'll tell you what I was singing. I was singing Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. David did not know an indwelling Holy Spirit. We're not looking at that. And David's saying, please don't take my salvation away and take away the Holy Spirit. What David knew was the power of the Holy Spirit in the office of king. And David said, I saw what happened to Saul when you took your spirit away from him and he had to rule in the power of Saul instead of in the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't you take that from me. I need the power of office to do what you have called me to do. When we ordain men under the offices of elder and deacon, what we're saying is not only that God has recognized and authorized them for a special task, he has also given them what I would simply call special grace to enable them to function in that office, to rule in that authority, to govern and to oversee our souls with the authority of God in his grace, by his power. And Paul's praying not only for himself, for the power of office, but he's also praying for that grace for others, grace to you. John MacArthur calls his ministry, grace to you. It's about the means of grace being proclaimed to you. We're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. We call that the means of grace. Do you know why it's the means of grace? Yes, because it gives us the power that we need. But it's called the means of grace because it's the word of God made visible. It's the word of God made sensible. We call preaching the means of grace. But only if it's preaching the word of God. Teaching, only if it's teaching the word of God. We call the fellowship of the saints the means of grace. But only if they're encouraging each other with the word of God. We call prayer a means of grace, but only if you're submitting yourself to the will of God as revealed in his word. The word is the means of grace. All of those other things, if and only if the word is a part of it, are they means of grace. Paul is saying, when we preach, you're getting grace. Now we don't necessarily feel it, but God is at work within us. Now, on the one hand, through the preaching of the word, through the foolishness of preaching, God was pleased to call to himself a people. We call that saving grace. As the word is proclaimed, God works in people's hearts, grants them life and faith, and they are saved from his wrath, saved from sin and from its penalty, saved from its power over us, saved from ourselves. But secondly, it's sanctifying grace. It's grace that God gives us so that we become everything that we're supposed to be, holy even as he is holy, more and more like Jesus Christ. It's sustaining grace. It gives us power to live in a world that's against God and God's grace. 
and to live there and be sustained in the midst of that and to continue to be, you know, the book of John, first, first John tells us that faith is the victory. We read that and we think faith produces the victory. No, it says faith is the victory. The fact that you can live for years and years and years as a believer in Jesus Christ. Recognize your own sinfulness. And sanctification means growing in your understanding of how bad you are. And appreciating more and more the cross of Jesus Christ and what God has done for you. It's becoming more and more aware of the fact that you're a sinner. Saved by grace. Just like me. Now, Jim, we're not that bad. Okay. The more and more you become aware of that, the more you're growing in sanctifying and sustaining grace because the more and more you're able to believe in spite of who I am and who I recognize myself to be, in spite of how heinous my sin is before God, and the only reason that God accepts me at all is because he looks at me and sees Jesus. The fact that you're still able to believe that is victory. The fact that you and I have a world that's doing everything it can to stop our proclamation of the gospel, to stop our belief in what they think is foolish psychology, a crutch for people who don't have the ability to carry on in this world. Yeah, it's my crutch. I don't mind saying that. I cannot live in this life apart from Jesus Christ to the glory of God, period. It cannot be done. In spite of their ridiculing us and making fun of us. At a time coming in this country while they will hold a gun to our head and ask us not to believe. In spite of all of that, God gives us the grace still to believe. That's victory. Isn't that something? God enables us to hang on. It's the power of God. He speaks from God. He brings God's grace, God's gifts to us. We think we can please God, satisfy God's demands, satisfy God's justice, do what we're supposed to do in human power. That was the whole Galatian problem. Saved by grace, now trying to live by law. It's what seems right to us. It's what we try to do. You can't do us. Jesus did it for us. Even our sanctification. Jesus did it for us. And what he calls us to do is rest in him. I'm holy before God. It ain't because of anything I've done. It's because of what Jesus has done for me. His power at work in me, says the Apostle Paul, makes me what I am. I can do all things. He doesn't stop there. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. There was a, a guy, his name was Stan. I was in ninth grade. I don't know why, but they decided they were going to play poker before school starts. So we were sitting in the cafeteria. They let us go in there on winter days. We were sitting in the cafeteria, and a guy pulled out a pack of cards, and we started playing poker. There was, there was no money involved. I only know this. I play poker. I lose. I don't play poker. It's just, I, I, I didn't grow up believing gambling was a sin. I do now. I grew up believing it was just stupid. <laughs> it was a fast way to be parted from your money. So, but we were just playing for fun that morning, and I pulled out my hand, and I had a three. Stan was sitting next to me. He had one or two threes. He put them in my hand, threw four of my cards down. He says, Jim, will take two. And I sat there. I won that hand, and I'm thinking, why would he do that for me? It's taken me, that was ninth grade. That was longer ago than I could do the arithmetic for. It's taken me this long to realize there was something about me he chose to like. 
Now, you need to know, I was not well-liked growing up. I used to think it was because I knew Jesus and I was being persecuted. Turns out, I was 35 before I realized, no, I was just a jerk. <laughs> I was an arrogant know-it-all and nobody liked me. And I deserved not to be liked. But Stan decided he liked me. There was no reason for Stan to like me. He'd just met me that day. But he chose to look at this stupid little snot and say, I like him. I'm going to do something good for him. Do you know that's who I am before God? I'm the stupid little snot who's a sinner. And he looked at me and said, I've chosen to love you. And I've chosen to give you my grace. It's a whole lot better than a pair of threes. You're going to win at life because you're going to continue to trust in me. And I'm going to make you successful at what I've called you to be. Like Jesus. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Bottom line, we listen to God speak. I mean, we listen to God by being attentive. We listen to learn who he is. We listen to find God's will for us. We listen to receive God's grace, but we listen to God through his servants. Not to be entertained, not to hear our opinions or his. We listen. Okay, so let me give you four quick applications out of that. I was telling the elders before we started that time means absolutely nothing to me. Um, in fact, people at New Hope aren't convinced that I even know how to tell time. So I just remembered that's seven minutes slow. We're going to huddle through this. Okay. Listen to what God does and has to say to you through who he calls and who he sends to you. John, others that come in and make John look good and make you long for his return. Listen to what they have to say. Pay attention. Um, I say that as one who finds it difficult to pay attention. In, in my current role, when uh, I mean, I, I've, I've been in pastoral ministry for nearly 40 years, it's difficult for me to sit and listen to a sermon. I'd rather be up here preaching it. It's difficult not to, to be thinking, how would I preach that? What would I do differently? What would I do the same? How would I preach that text? How close did he come to what I would say? My wife is convinced, though, that uh, the truth of the matter is that God called me into ministry because it was the only way I'd stay awake through a sermon. So. And there are some who don't think I do that. <laughs> pray for those that God has called. Pray for those that God sends. Pray, pray, pray. They, when when uh, Charles Spurgeon was the pastor at uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle, there were a group of people who came to hear him speak. And they went in. They thought they met the man who was the janitor. And he was showing them around. Turned out it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon himself. They'd never met him. They didn't know who he was. He says, would you like to see our power plant? And they thought, well, that's kind of an interesting thing to show us in a church. But sure. And so he took them to a room. And he opened the door. And there were over 100 people in there praying. He said, that's the power of Metropolitan Tabernacle. Pray. You want some changes in your pastor? Pray. God will make him what he wants to be. Pray. Thirdly, look for God's seal of approval. And I think Presbytery does a really good job of handling that for you. They examine a man. They test him to see whether or not his gifts are genuine. They test him to see whether or not he's really called of God. He gets a subjective call to be sure. I believe that God has called me into ministry, but then he gets an objective call. Someone writes a letter and says, we really commend this guy. He's a capable teacher of the word of God. But then the presbytery examines him to be sure. This guy can really do it. But then you need to be looking to see, does this guy really promote what God has to say? Or does he promote what 
he wants to say. And then finally, heed what they teach. Heed because you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Let me not assume that everybody here knows Jesus Christ. It's a whole lot better than, what is it, Visa, MasterCard, don't leave home without it. Don't leave here without Jesus. You want to know Jesus? Grab me afterwards. Jim, I want to know that Jesus. I want to know that grace. Grab one of the elders here. Grab somebody and say, I'm not leaving here. And by the way, that will be a witnessing opportunity. Grab someone who can lead you to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Those of you who know him, this is your chance to recommit. I want to know God. Paul says that Philippians. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Unfortunately, he carries that on. He says, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. But I want to know God. And then finally, repent. We don't all do that. I believe that you and I should be living a lifestyle of repentance. I I repent for the things I do, the things I think, the things I say. But I need to be repenting of my proclivity to sin. I need to be repenting of my sin nature. I need to be repenting of the fact that apart from Jesus, I'm still a sinner. That's my ID. I need to be constantly in repentance. Let me leave you with with this illustration. Henry Ward Beecher was one of the most famous preachers of his day. I believe he pastored a church in Boston, Massachusetts. One day, he was not going to be there. And so he'd called his brother to speak for him. I believe his brother's name was Lyle, but don't hold me to that. And uh, the people came from all around, all over New England to hear Henry Ward Beecher preached. And when Lyle stood up at the time of the sermon, a bunch of people got up and started to leave. And so he went to the pulpit and he said, all of those who came to worship Henry Ward Beecher, have a good day. To those of you who came to worship and listen to God, let's open his word and dig in. You think about that. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, give us grace. Amen.